0: You're listening to The SubClub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. All right, welcome to The SubClub Podcast. I'm your host, David Bernard, and here today, Jacob Eiding. Hello, Jacob.
1: Hello, David. It's always a pleasure to be here.
0: Always a pleasure. Uh, today, our guest is Leon Sassen co-founder and CTO at Rise Science, a company dedicated to helping people overcome sleep challenges, feel better, and be more productive. Since its inception in 2014, Rise has primarily focused on elite athletes, helping some of the top NFL, NBA, college football teams with their sleep. But in 2019, they decided to enter the consumer subscription space, which became even more important in 2020 as COVID challenged their B2B model. Leon and the team at Rise went from no experience in consumer subscriptions in late 2019 to well over $500,000 in ARR today. So welcome to the podcast, Leon. That's, uh, that's quite a story and a lot of fun stuff to dive in there. The transition, a lot of apps go kind of B2C to B2B, and like that's really fun, but it's nice to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, fun uh, fun to chat with you guys today.
2: Huge fan of what you're building and... and... The consumer space, it, I kind of took a crash course over the last 18 <laughs> months into just no figuring kidding. out how the hell this works. And uh, it's super exciting.
0: Yeah, it's great. Well, why don't you tell us just a little bit more about your, uh, your background? Like th- this actually, you know, I've talked a couple of times, but I've never, never gotten the full story of like what, what brought you to, to Rise. And have you been there since 2014? So you co founded and been there, gosh, what's that, almost seven, eight years now?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, it's been a long time, but it feels like a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. I mean, we really started, like me and and my co-founder, CEO, Jeff, we were good buddies in college, sort of stud, studying engineering together uh, back in Chicago. And we were like tired all the time, trying to just like, you know, you have fun in college. We're trying to just do like aggressive engineering school and learning stuff. So you're kind of like always tired you know, staying late, waking up early, all that, the classic stuff. And we just went down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how the hell do you stop feeling tired? And it, it sounds almost like too obvious and too simple, <laughs> but it's turned out there's a lot of science and turns out there's, there was this whole field of sort of sleep and performance and just sleep in general. So we just went super deep around starting doing research, independent research with professors. Back Chicago had a ton of really good sleep labs. So we just started learning all about sleep. And it was very clear, you know, back then my, my sort of, I was the type A person that I was always would tell my friends, Hey, I only want to sleep five hours a night because I'll sleep when I'm dead. And then after all this research and just reading the science on the paper, it's like, right, that's the wrong way. My my body is sort of tricking me. I just need to sleep well and it's going to pay off so, so much. Um, so long story short, we started doing a bunch of research and published a couple of papers showing. You know, it was like early days, 2013. This was before we started the company. That even tracking sleep was pretty hard. Like Fitbit had only the thing, like the actual the clip-on device that mm. you would put on your belt, not even the wrist. It was
1: ages ago, <laughs> it was A
2: long time ago. It feels like a long, long time ago. But so the market had changed a lot, and through our research, we got in touch with a bunch of basically sports teams and elite sort of coaches and that kind of world. And they all were coming to us and saying, Hey, sleep is extremely important for our players, our athletes. How do we squeeze more performance out of them? How do we help them kind of perform better at football, basketball, whatever they cared about. Um, So that's when we actually launched the company and it was a software sleep solution plus a hardware device to just how do you help an NFL team help their players sleep better and use all that information to just the players. They can feel better. They can play better. Um, and we spent a few years building a business there. It was super fun because the product was consumer friendly. Cause imagine you have like all these NFL quarterbacks and NFL head coaches mm-hmm. using the product, you know, so it needs to be a solid app. But then there was a lot of enterprise packaging around it to sell this thing to large teams and universities and that kind of world. And Really, wasn't until 2018, 2019 that we were ready to take on what we built and say, hey, we know this works for a few thousand athletes really well. How do you help people understand that the most important thing you can do for your health and energy during your day is sleep? And how do we take what we build and take it into the mass market, whether that's kind of B2B, more traditional companies, or the consumer world? And COVID, I think, really accelerated the transition where we decided to go full-on consumer subscription because it was so clear that we had a product people loved and we could scale this this thing and getting consumers to actually pay and get a ton of value from, from it. So that's sort of the the story in a, in a nutshell.
1: That was pretty well summarized what did it take for you guys to i mean because the 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 app itself is this this whole experience, right how similar are what you guys were selling on a b 2 c on a b two b model to these teams to what ended up on the app store?
2: it was roughly the same product like we never had sort of like two things we did rebuild uh, and the biggest change was that we had to we decided to move away from hardware so at one point we were sort of sourcing hardware from Europe and you know it was an under the mattress sleep sensor but The core product, you know, 80% is the same thing. Um, But in the B2B world, you sort of have a lot more either hand-holding and, you know, you need reporting for the the buyer and sort of a lot more moving pieces to get it to work. Um, And sometimes in B2B, you can kind of be a little less polished because you Mm -hmm. can fix it with a quick email, with a quick phone call. Whereas when you're having thousands of users... If it's not the, the level of polish or it's not sort of button up, it's just not going to work. So I, I think the, the level of polish and fixing that last 10% of issues is definitely more important and took us a bit to, to refine. But the so, core experience was the same.
1: So you guys had an app on the App Store for for your B2B clients where you would say like you'd sell a contract. I'm asking because there's a lot of, David will attest there's a lot of <laughs> our users who are kind of talking about doing the opposite, right? Like what does right. it take to kind of transition into B2B? Um, which may or may not be the right call depending on your business and your segment. But like, um, so do, do you had an app on the app store and then you would go through the enterprise sales motion and then they would get the app that way? Is that is that how it worked? That's basically how it worked. We had an app and you couldn't actually sign up to
2: it as a regular you know, person that would install the app. Right, it would just be a, a login page or whatever. That said, we use, and this is something that for product development, we would actually drive cohorts of users to our app with through Facebook or whatever marketing source, uh, small budgets. But if you have, you know, one of our core ways in which we build product is talking to a lot of users. Uh, so we roughly had maybe 100 users every week when we were developing a lot of the product. And for that, having the app store helps you just have enough users that you can not only look at the analytics to see how, you know, where they're getting stuck and where they're getting confused, but just having people you can literally hop on a Zoom and talk about their, their issues with sleep, what they care about, what have they tried, you know, and we probably spent six to 12 months refining that via this app that wasn't the app store, but you could not really sign up for it. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Until we opened the, the floodgates. And That's really nice. Uh, yeah.
1: Like a lot of apps don't have the luxury of that, right? They, they have to just launch something, you know, to, I, I, and I would, I would suggest to anybody who's like in that pre-launch phase, if you can get some situation like that where you have a trickle of users... And you can start to make decisions integrated with user feedback that's so much better than flying blind and like driving towards a i mean
2: i think you need to early on we would, de- would do it on test flight really which mm-hmm. was you know imagine driving people through like a facebook campaign on like a facebook ads campaign Although, oh, we- you would send facebook ads to
1: to a test flight wow. campaign
2: Sometimes, well it was like literally to like a survey like a type form just to see if, hey are you the right person because sometimes. Like, you know, you're like, hey, totally the wrong user for user. We don't even want you on the app, but we would definitely send sometimes up to test flight and then we would put it in the app store. Um, And I know one tactic that honestly, I didn't know existed when we were doing it, but doing it in another country. So in the app store, you can kind of like launch in Mm -hmm. Australia, like another, let's say if your app is English based, you can, there's a bunch of English countries so you can launch in Australia, New Zealand, UK. Sort of Canada. smaller markets to test yeah. ground before going going live um but now i learned that after the fact from <laughs> from a bunch of pros that do that before launching a major
1: nobody talks about release. it but yeah it's yeah. kind of a it's kind of a pretty uh commonly it was used a lot in uh i know when i worked on free to play games definitely like you would launch in a small market and optimize before going going broad
0: how is, how is the uh billing transition like do you do you still sell enterprise and, and, and has Apple hassled you at all about about the split? So like, I mean, uh, we just announced recently Notion is, is a revenue cat customer. So like they still have all of their kind of web stuff. But now they have in-app, in-app subscriptions that they're uh, building out. How are you managing the balance of those two? And has Apple hassled you at all? Oh boy, that's that's a good. Yeah. One. I mean, we're, we're saying the
2: transition. And we basically are full-on consumer, so B two B is almost like a legacy, and and we do have long-term plans for how that fits in into large-scale healthcare and sort of medical providers and that kind of world. I think it's it's going to be because I mean, sleep is so impactful, so that yeah. that's sort of a no-brainer. Um, so I mean, Apple did it wasn't really a big problem because we would sell sort of fully outside contracts. Um, right, and, and I think. I mean, the Apple review process is sort of this scary thing and always gets in the way. Well, I'm sure but, you got
1: hung up all the time, right? Where they were we still like...
2: get hung up all the time, but back <laughs> then, you know, a good explanation of like, you know, hey, these are like paid outside and, and back we, we for enterprise customers, we do have a much higher level of service where yeah. we literally would talk, we would have sleep consultations um, where, yeah. you know, we would hop on a half an hour call and talk about how sleep impacts their life and their work and what changes they need to be making and have regular check-ins. So with that explanation, Apple doesn't really get in the way because we did have truly, you know, added service on top and we had sort of all the enterprise features. Um, So luckily that's mostly in our past, but the billing stuff, it's always... uh, The Apple review process, I think, is fundamentally broken, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we can all try try together. (laughs) Don't get me on
0: a tangent here. I did want to circle back. Um, You said... It sounds like the the long road for RISE Science might be B2B to B2C back to B2B. So is that kind of like long path you, you'd you like to kind of take your learnings in consumer and go back into the enterprise market? We're definitely go, going to go down the route. And sort of
2: the way you often think about it is, there's a point that the market is so large and there's many large players that It does make sense if a large healthcare provider wants to provide this thing that actually improves sleep and will improve medical outcomes down the line. We always have sort of inbound from companies that maybe someone that tried a product and they love it and they want to buy licenses to a bunch of employees. So I think there's a bunch of natural points, but what we feel extremely strongly about after seeing the traction and the user love is that if it's only a consumer product, it's going to work really well. So B2B is just a way of of reaching more people on a deeper market um, and kind of reach consumers that maybe you wouldn't reach otherwise. Because maybe, you know, there's still a ton of people that are not comfortable paying for apps. I think luckily that segment of people is shrinking because more and more people are getting used to subscriptions and digital services. But there's still a bunch of people that um, we could reach through other channels that likely would not subscribe via the app store. Uh, So that's kind of, how we're thinking about it, but the next good chunk of time, we're 100% focused on on the consumer subscription side.
1: I I, I think it's easier to go that way because like the 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 activation energy of one consumer mm-hmm. subscriber is so much lower <laughs> than you know one enterprise deal, right? I mean
2: enter- and sort of I don't know if we we've been burned by enterprise, but we spent you know Jeff and I we spent a lot of our careers selling large enterprise deals, um, you know above 50k you know 200k deals and you know to large universities so you you know you need to like procure you know the the state of texas because ultimately a public university it's like the state of texas so you know public bids and large-scale deals with pilots and all this sort of stuff and it's doable but b2b i think is so much more than just hey we just want to package up bulk selling licenses like you need a whole motion of you know at this point i think it's a science Um, and one of our early mentors i remember this it was crazy but he was like look go to the salesforce website this was maybe 5 years ago go to the salesforce website and sign up for a demo and see how they follow up with you uh, <laughs> and you're going to get a call from an SDR that's going to ask a bunch of questions and tell you what your problem is and put you in a bucket of like how to follow on and how to actually have you try the product and qualify you as a lead and and he just told me that to to share how How much of, hey, Salesforce is the best company in the world, arguably, is selling software, and they have this to assign. And so that's basically what you need to build if you want to do B2B well. And that's not only expensive, but it just takes real focus. And and we did it for years, right? So it was great, but I don't think it's the kind of thing you can do on the side to just make a couple Mm -hmm. blocks like, oh... It's, you know, uh, I'll do it on my spare side and sell a couple licenses or we'll, here.
1: or we'll tack on, yeah, let's tack on some sort of like program on top. You need
2: to figure out who's the person that buys your product at a company and what do they care about and what do they need to justify as of the budget. And, and if you do, it's great because they can pay way more than consumers. And I think yeah. that's sort of the holy grail, right? You can sell the same product, more expensive because they ha- they get more value as a uh, company because they get real profits from it. But you need to do a lot of the work of, Finding the people, what makes them an ideal customer, how do you reach them, and that's that's fun. And there's professionals doing it. I don't think it's the kind of thing you can do on the on the side. Yeah, unless you're sort of the the slacks of the world, right? Like there's a couple companies that are either get lucky or just go insanely viral, and it's you know have the have a company is already using your product and they're like banging on your door, like hey. I need to pay for this because we have, you know, a thousand people yeah. using it and it's a security risk. As
1: you're talking about the B2C to B2B motion, like I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I can see that becoming more of a thing where I don't know how the the relationship with an app like Rise goes into the enterprise, but if you reach your critical mass, I think Calm is kind of doing this now. Like mm-hmm. you have enough probably usage amongst your your employees, like, hey, we offer it as a perk, right? And then you you get some sort of um, you know, I, I, I think there will be like analogous to Slack, some more bottoms up motions on this stuff. And then the, the, you know, who, who the pair is and what, you know, I think we'll, we'll see how things get creative. Talk about like a big system, like Kaiser health or something like this. Like they might not necessarily even need to pay for your product themselves. Like they could just say like, Hey, we should be recommending, like they could just pick up preferred provider and say like, Hey, for anybody experiencing sleep stuff, we have a relationship with this company and like we like their product and we think it's good and we should recommend it to our our patients, right? And then still let the consumer actually make the buying decision, which might be beneficial in some cases. Right. I'll be interesting to see how you guys re- re-explore that. Or if you don't, <laughs> like forget it. We're just gonna <laughs> stay consumer to, to the moon.
2: Yeah. And I think you're right, but but sort of going back to the Coleman Headspace are both very aggressively going into Launching their B2B products and it's doing really well, but it's not a thing on the side. Like, literally, they hired CEOs yeah. that are enterprise people that know how to sell into enterprise. So, it's almost like fundamentally they're investing proportionally the right amount of money because salespeople are very expensive. And if you want to sell subscriptions at five bucks a pop, you know, it's good. You need a lot of enterprise people to sell that really well, or you need to be extremely viral. So, I, I agree, but it needs the right level of. Um, you know, you you don't end up having Kaiser Permanente recommend you as a provider without a ton of work and, a lot of meetings. and someone yeah. that knows how to talk to Kaiser Permanente. And that's yeah. But I agree with you. It will happen and it will happen more and more.
0: This is something I'm really hoping the app stores actually start addressing better. Because, you know, like if, if Jacob wanted to get Rise Science for all the Revenue Cat employees... Like, what a pain in the ass. Like, he would just have to say, like, uh, subscribe and get reimbursed or whatever. Like, for, for you know, 30 people now, like, it, there's just no, like, easy way to do that. But I think the app stores, like, if you think about family sharing, like, if you kind of squint, that maybe looks a little bit hmm. like what kind of a business purchase could be for small businesses. And it's like... And I wrote a post about this recently about that there is a kind of a gradient, right? All the way from like selling to Kaiser Permanente to like Jacob saying, hey, I want to get my 30 employees onto Rise because I think it could really like help everybody. Um, But there's not a great way to do that. So like a minute ago, you were talking about how um, you do get one-off requests. So like if Jacob came to you today and said, hey, I want to get like 30 licenses for my team. Do you do that, and like, how do, how do you actually facilitate that? Because I've actually had other other people in the space, or it, I mean, it's just something that's coming up more and more as like, how do you even handle that? Like, how do you sell thirty licenses to a team? Do you just ignore those emails? Or... Mean, this has always been a problem on the App Store, right? Yeah. I mean, I would hope that Apple does something, and
2: I think that Apple the thirty percent tax and all of that is going to have interplays there. But there are ways to sell services outside of of the App Store. It just generally a way worse experience for users. Uh, so whether that's through like single sign-on, you know, like you can, yeah. you know, if, basically you, if you log you in with your it, right? revenue cat email, let's say as a company, um, it's already kind of the building is handled on the back end via Stripe or whatever we use. Uh, but it is a ton more hassle, especially, and then you're like either figure out promo codes and kind of hacking that system on top
0: right. or
2: figure out, like deep links that don't actually work that well anymore um, and they're working less and less so the way we do it now is sort of like via either single sign-on and doing like you create your account outside and then it's easy to link but it the failure rate is really really high like you get because actually when we do that we also when companies buy licenses people can also get their family like a spouse like a plus one you know so they because many people sleep with someone else and then taking care of their sleep together is super valuable. And the catch is that often, you know, a partner or spouse doesn't have...
1: Doesn't a single have single sign-on. Sign yeah. sign
2: <laughs> and the deep, deep blinking <laughs> doesn't work. And promo codes are super hacky. Uh, so the number of... Luckily, it's low volume, but the number of requests on people that are like, oh, I paid for a subscription, but I actually got it for free with the company,
1: it's a nightmare. And Let's just go back to CDs in the mail. <laughs> like,
0: it was clear, they said... Physical media yeah. 2021. Let's go. I'm, I'm pushing Apple on this one. I, I've, I've sent a couple of emails outlining because I just, I've been hearing it more and more. And like, this is a real problem that needs solving.
1: Well, I mean, we're going to solve it. People are going to solve it. I'm not committing yeah. to, cut to anything, but like it will get <laughs> solved. It will get solved outside of Apple's monetization pipeline True. and right. like, they're not going to get anything. So it would make a lot of sense for them to do it. How big is the market? I don't know. I would say if Calm Headspace, if these like People who have reached like the biggest scale of these personal consumer apps, um, subscription apps, then like I would imagine that there's enough there for it to make sense to, to Apple. But then again, like, look how much they make on the App Store with the consumer thing. Like, why would they spread themselves so thin?
0: Right? They, yeah. But but, it but has but, to be but, a but, billion but. or
1: I don't know, hundred million dollar
0: opportunity. Small businesses buy a lot more like consumers, and there's so many small businesses out there. So if Calm was like. Hey, but, the, a, in-out purchase, a, but the in-app
1: purchase, the in purchase model works pretty good. Like, I mean, maybe the thirty-person business it breaks down. I guess it depends on you know. Good no, how the do Canadian, you even right? do it for like yeah. a five?
0: How do you even do it for a five-person company? Everybody, like, yeah, everybody. Have buys have a copy a shop. right? And then you, yeah, and then that's a that's a huge hassle. Like getting yeah. like monthly reimbursements and how like. How do we get us? David
2: to go undercover uh, at Apple and just like <laughs> get a
0: job at Apple? And, I'm and, working and, on it. I'm working <laughs> on it. <laughs> <laughs but yeah, I mean it's a it's a huge opportunity and and yeah, something something's gotta give. So yeah, it's something top of mind for me that you know, that we'll be thinking about at Revenue Cat. And then, you know, there's ways to solve it now. It's just a pain in the ass. So we'll get there. We'll get there.
1: I wanna I wanna transition uh the conversation so we don't spend the whole time talking about B2B since that is the past for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just went through again your your guys' is onboarding. I want to talk about that because like I think I mean we talked about a little bit about how you you transitioned your B two B customers, but your onboarding is spectacular. It's beautiful. It's like really laid out. It's it's animated. It it takes in data. Just all the best practices I've known about onboarding. How did you how did you arrive at that? Because that's kind of I think something that you undervalue onboarding as a B two like B. Revenue Cat's onboarding, to be honest, is like super meager because it doesn't <laughs> need to be super strong as long we have good documentation. But I know from the consumer world that onboarding has to be like a greased slide, like users have to just like fall down all the way to activation so how how did you arrive at it?
2: yeah I mean onboarding is something critical. like I think we got partly lucky and in hindsight, but also thoughtful in many ways, like the going into you know or two three years selling to enterprise, one of our core offerings I was telling you is we would coach players one on one and we would coach small groups of people and companies you know telling about sleep and and really you had two jobs to do back then you you had to like convince the people in 10 minutes that sleep is this incredibly important thing probably the most important thing in kind of their health sphere that they should care about because it affects you know if you're a football player it affects your speed your accuracy your all that thing if you're a worker it affects like literally your motivation and how good you are at picking up the phone and you know making phone calls successful like sales calls um, if you're it affects your mental clarity. So it affects like literally everything you care about. Um, so you have to convince people that sleep matters, which could be hard to do. And then two, you need to explain once that's done, you need to convince them that you're there to help them solve the sleep problem that they may not know that they already had. And that was sort of, we really refined how we would do that in person in sort of small presentations. So we really try emulating a lot of that in our first onboarding. And what we knew was sort of always different. Is hey, the job of the onboarding is never to show people how to use the app. Um, <laughs> like kind of like back to when you would get a an old you know flip phone, like you had instructions and you had to figure out how to use it. Like and the you know the, the story with the iPhone that came without an instruction manual. Like people don't really want a tutorial. Like if you need a tutorial, it's too complicated. But people. They just want to know how what you're doing and what your product is doing affects their lives and why they should care about it. So, our onboarding was really designed to solve those two things, which is education and then convincing that this is the right thing they should do. And I think during that time, like captivating people and treating as like content that should read, like you should take away and almost like be like, holy crap, that changed my life. And I don't know if that's true of all the apps, but for us, that would be the the reaction we would have when I talk to people one-on-one about their sleep and how it affects them, they would be like, no way. Like you're kidding me. That's that's how it works. And how do we convert that into, you know, screens and designs into a, a phone that they can do during their time? And uh I think that's generally how we think about it. And there's a couple, it's funny that you mentioned best practices, because for the most part I'm a big believer in, you know, most things you should do best practices because that's why they're best practices. Because everyone there's a lot else of prior art out there. Right, there's prior art. Don't from. try. You're not smarter than a lot of other product people and designers that are solving the same problem. But at the same time, a lot of best practices are all about, specifically for onboarding, they are all about, hey, reduce the number of screens, lower the friction, like get to the home screen faster. And for us, like we test everything and we am happy to talk. We should talk about testing in a bit. It's on the list. But, but, but more and more we found that if your content is good and while you're showing people and giving them the right information that actually is relevant for them, fewer screens is not actually better. Like in fact, if we can do something that creates more value, whatever that means, creates more value for the user, but that requires more friction, you know, like one more permission, one more text to explain, we're gonna do it. We're gonna add the friction if it's going to give us like a more mind blowing experience. And that I think can be a little controversial because it's not about zero friction. Cause then you end up kind of like, okay, just go straight to the home screen, but then people don't really know why this matters to their lives. And,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the reason it matters is, I mean, for consumer apps and a lot of these apps, like all of your churn is going to be on day one. So if, if you don't have them doing onboarding, it's going to be really tough to get them back to, to pay attention to what you're saying. Cause they gave you a shot and and you need to take it when they're downloading the app.
0: I think the key for your onboarding though is that you match intent to friction. And I think part of the reason best practices around onboarding are are to reduce friction is because people come into so many apps with such less so much less intent. And so and that's why fitness apps actually do a really good job with long onboarding because people come into a fitness app with a much higher level of intent. So I think it, it like you just have to match that. But what's so amazing about your onboarding? I I just went through it again last night. I love the way you you like set this thing up where it was like, "Hey, what if I told you there was a drug that could make you feel better, you know, give you energy, do this, do that?" Like you set it all up and then you're like, "Well, really, there's a fundamental problem here." And then the next screen is like, That problem is sleep debt, and then there's that big button like, "What is sleep debt?" And then it's like, "Collect my email." (laughs) And and I like I've like I've like paid attention to sleep and like read about all this for like like a decade. And like, I got to that screen. And I was like, heck yeah, I'm giving up my email. I want to know more about sleep. Debt. <laughs> it's so brilliant. Nothing says nothing says we've sold enterprises like a, like a build up
1: sale like that. Right. It like that's amazing. Tells, you know, you, you plant the seed, like open the question, like get the, somebody to engage. And, and to be honest, like this is where like the best practices, like sometimes
2: fell short. Like yeah. I'm all in the camp of collect the less, you know, as few information as you need to provide a good experience. Uh, But then you sort of get to a point of view of the users and if the information you collect is useful, it's sort of, people are happy to give you permissions. And so being a peer is there is sort of tricky. For example, the email one, I think is a good example where a lot of people would tell you, hey, if you can remove the email, maybe do it post sign up or like post onboarding. Sure, it's going to improve things. But we, I mean, we tested that because we test a lot of things that we do, even though we have an opinion and then we test it to make sure that it's true. And people that are not going to give you the email at the beginning, they're probably not interested enough. And, yeah, Yeah. they may get to the end, but they're like, well, they don't want to pay anyway. Um, So we found way less of a hassle if you ask the email up front than people that actually sign up without the email and then subscribe. And then they're like, oh, how do I find my account back? Good luck. Because, like, you're a random ID in some database and we have no way of connecting you and getting your data back. So it's sort of tricky.
0: But but it was great, though, how you like you built up the intent and then you added friction and then you built up intent. It was like you built toward that moment of friction because entering an email is absolutely friction. But it was just so great how you like nurtured intent along that path so that even though it was friction, the people who are going to enter their email are going to enter it there if they're going to enter it at all. So, yeah, it was, just, it was fantastic. And on the intent conversation, I think that's a... One of
2: the challenges, often especially for something that is very sleep related, is that it really depends the time of day that you're using it for, what your intent is. Mm. Um, Some people think that the sleep app should be used right before bed, maybe for like a sound session or relaxation or something like on that category. But some our app is also designed to be used during the day to help you understand how your sleep affects your energy during the day, and that's an area that figuring out the right intent is tricky and we're still working on improving, but I think sort of for us, we found that it, it, it's helpful to keep that in mind, but also not get super bugged down on the only thing that matters is crafting, like getting you as quick as possible to the onboarding. And I think yeah. that's not true for a lot of utility apps. Sometimes it's like, hey, all I want is a scan PDF into text, and I want to do it as soon as possible. Whereas for us and a lot of kind of fitness and education apps, it really matters that we get the trust of the people and, and the kind of stand out so that they then stay around for the long while with you.
0: Yeah. So I do want to talk about like your your testing process and it'd be actually kind of fun to talk about your testing process in context of this. So like, what are some of the things that you tried with your onboarding that failed? Like what's your stack to to measure and understand why it failed and then then I, and then I really would love to hear some of the like failed tests cuz cuz you know you kind of see the finished product and and that's where you were saying earlier like a, a lot of people just copy best practices or you go to a fitness app and you copy the typical fitness app thing but you didn't see the like 50 attempts that that fitness app had and you don't understand the intent of their user. So I'd love to hear some of the, the, the failures that brought you to this point and then how you measured those. Yeah, I mean the testing is
2: key to how we figure out the product side, but I would even step back like one like I truly believe that testing is not going to make a great product. Having a really good AB testing organization and a team that can AB test is not going to lead to like the best product ever. So way before testing like we care a ton about, like I was saying, like 100 users a week actually getting on Zoom calls, which sounds crazy. You know, Or my PM really, and a product, <laughs> the hair product and designer, they spend a lot of time literally talking to users and we put gift, gift cards out. Um, so it takes a lot of time and kind of almost like a humility of just, hey, we don't know what's going to work. We don't, you know, and whether that's actually getting feedback on the app or also walking them through proper user research on screenshots and, and designs all the way to talking to users unrelated about the app and just trying to figure out what have they tried for sleep and what worked and what didn't. So I think that's the first step. Like if that's not done and that took us, that's probably the hardest part, like getting a product that roughly works To
1: develop and- an intuition, right? To develop a quant- qualitative sense. Exactly. And at one point we had sort of the product that we knew for B2B,
2: it worked really well and people, some people would love it and it would change your life. And I think that's where A-B testing started, be, you know, became sort of Right, this is the way in which we can change a couple of things here and there um, and be thoughtful about best practices to really improve sort of the core metrics as we start scaling this thing. And I think we went through almost a holy crap, we need to take A B testing seriously because we just don't know what's working and whatnot. And I think we just have to spend a few weeks, honestly, at this day, the tooling is pretty easy. Like there's no reason why you don't have analytics set up properly and you have. You know, you're not randomizing a couple things like all the tooling is easy to do these days. Um, so during that time, we decided, right, everything we launch. Sure, we're going to have the research behind it. And we have a strong opinion that we believe why it's going to work better than what we have now. But we're still going to test it in parallel through th- statistical significance to figure out what works and what doesn't. And whether that's a small feature like. Changing the messaging and the paywall as I think a, a very common example, mm-hmm. or like a huge feature, like redesigning the home screen um, and actually have half the people on a different home screen and seeing how that works. And I think the approach in those days was A B test, most things. I think statistical significance is something that a lot of people don't fully grok. And I think it's super easy to get wrong.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If you're just saying like, oh, you have a hundred users and you know, you have 50 here and 14 converted and you have 50 here and 18 converted. And you're like, okay, the the 18, you know, the B sample, the 18 one, it's like, well, no, that's not how it works. You know, you need statistical validity. It's not just counting averages. And to do that, especially early on when we didn't have a lot of users, I think the, because you cannot test statistical significance on small changes without a lot of users.
1: Yeah, especially if you're testing something far down the funnel, right? I, I think sort of the
2: the framework that we use a ton, and I thought about it, you need to test the most extreme things mm-hmm. and the things that are fastest to learn. So for us, for example, we, get you, we try getting you on a free trial the same day you onboard. So on day zero, right on the onboarding. And that's kind of why we did the hard paywall because we could learn very quickly if something works or not. On on day zero. If you're testing like something that happens two weeks after, or maybe like you have a a free a full freemium thing for 10 days and then maybe ask for an upgrade, then like when you make a change, it's gonna take you two months to see Mm -hmm. whether it works or not. And who knows, if especially if you don't have enough users, that's too long or of a cycle uh to truly change things. So testing the most extreme. Cases like how do you go from a twenty percent conversion to a forty percent and not from twenty to twenty two percent by changing like a word and kind of trying to do that like what takes the long the, the, the shortest time to the conversion event, and what can have the most impact so that we mm-hmm. can actually tell apart a a forty percent from a twenty percent but you cannot tell apart a twenty five percent from a twenty percent with the numbers that we had, for example, and I think that's working really well like the now it's not even like a question that everything we do is sort of A B tested and the tooling is a little hard to get up and running early and get the team aligned on hey, how do you set up a dashboard properly? How do you look at this stuff? But but then it's just second nature. Like how
1: do you um who owns the tests on your side? Like is it is it you or is it on product side? Cause I, I having done this in the past, I always found that like you kind of need a PM or an owner for each test to like think about the engineering implications the data side, like all of it, I've always found that, yeah, you're right. Like the tools are generally available now, but keeping them all in line and like everything, all the things considered, like how is your team handling all that?
2: Yeah. I mean, it definitely became a product thing. Um, but early on when we're trying to figure out, I was personally owning, setting up the tooling does take a lot of work, especially if you're doing marketing and you have a lot of kind of acquisition stuff and attribution that you need to take care of. Um, and I think that's where I was actually helpful where I could play the role, of sort of like founder PM, but also go in and like hook up the tools and figure out how they look mm-hmm. in the dashboard. But I mean, from the beginning, like product, you know, our head of product who plays a PM role, our designer and our engine, you know, devs were very much on board. Like this is just how it works. Like when the developer starts work implementing the feature, they know it's it's sort of like behind a, a feature flag, and it's yeah. not something that you do last minute. You know, they know mm-hmm. that analytics are going to come through and we sort of know how we have to say to that. But I won't lie that it does take a few hiccups and especially as you kind of have a ton of experiments running.
1: Are, are you guys running simultaneous experiments?
2: Yes, but more and more, we're trying to be more thoughtful about how do you isolate certain tests um, and can do you test different parts of the funnel at different times? Um, but there's a point that controlling for variables is key, right? Like even yeah. small things like, the marketing source or the, is it a weekend Mm -hmm. or a week, uh, like weekday or weekend, Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of stuff can have a huge impact. And even if you, you know, so sometimes a randomized 50-50, if you have low numbers, will not actually be randomized under the hood because you can have, I don't know, a different age group on each side of the randomization and that's going to skew your numbers. So now we're at the point that it's, I think, you know, where you're like a little bit too deep when you have to pull the data down into r to do proper regressions (laughs) because the
1: tools are just not working and yeah i mean i think that as you you know when like you go back to your point about testing the big obvious early things first that buys you a lot of insurance because ideally you see big swings and that's stuff you should feel confident about and then when the swings are smaller even if like your little tool says like, oh, statistical significance, if they're really close, you kind of just want to be like, yeah, it's probably a top, like double that, right? Like double the the air bars because of systemics and, and things that are hard to control for and all this other
0: stuff. And so, that's
2: kind of how we prioritize the test, right? Like we were, hey, these are our numbers. These are sign up rates, trial conversion rates, you know, paid to trial or pay or trial to pay. And then. Through, I think the community and this was sort of the crash course. Like, I talked to a ton of people that had run apps to scale, which I knew nothing about before. And very quickly, you sort of have a sense of benchmarks, and everyone knows what the benchmarks are. And it was like, all right, to make this work, we need trial start. It needs to go up from ten to twenty percent. Say a number. And all right, what is what are the things that are going to make that number move? And we're going to stack rank and and, you know stack rank them and figure out and ship in that priority list because. If not, there are just so many things you can test. Yeah, uh, that you're just going to be overwhelmed by by tests.
0: Have you done any like long term cohort lookbacks on those tests? Because I'm really, I'm I'm really curious to know, like if you, cause I screwed this up in my own app. I jacked um, free trial start rate way up, conversions went down, but it was a really bad experience. For it's like you can pull levers that are actually bad experiences, which then like have really bad, you know, downstream effects. So, in some of these big experiments where you did see a, you know, doubling of trial start or something like that, have you ever, you know, like looked back 3 months at a cohort that you did that test on to see if like down funnel deeper stuff is different? Like if retention's different, if engagement's different? We do and
2: one of the things that I'm trying to figure out is how do we actually rerun tests after the fact as well to like double check mm-hmm. them especially as like, you know, now we have in order to magnitude more users and the composition of the user has changed so what and happens when we, we run the test do we get the same yeah. information but to answer your question i think that's where like product values matter and we really we start with what we think the change should be and test right. to basically check if it works or not and sometimes we roll it out and sometimes like oh no we were wrong and people don't actually want that but i would say there's definitely points in time that there's a conflict in what we think is best for the, peer, you know, for the users as sort of like a purist consumer and more versus like what's better for the business. I would say the biggest example that comes to mind is at one point we actually killed our monthly subscription and I didn't want to do it. We're trying to figure out like, you know, the monthly subscription serves a job. There's people that want a monthly and not an annual plan. That's totally understandable. But for a bunch of reasons, we decided that the the path to go was killing it temporarily until we figure out what is the job of the monthly subscription. And, and now we're thinking about, hey, how do you add it back um, into a in a more thoughtful way? Because uh, we found that for us, a monthly subscription was really used as a crutch for people that basically wanted a long trial. Yeah, They were like, because our product, we think about it as something I use long-term. It's not something that use a month and they turn off. In that case, we failed. So the monthly was used as Hey, I love the product or it's, I think I can love the product. I need help with my sleep, but I'm, you know, seven days is not enough. So I just buy a month and see how it goes. And now we're trying to solve from a product perspective. How do you actually solve that problem? You know, the problem, the problem isn't that someone is willing to pay differently or the price point is a problem. The problem is that someone needs more time to test out the product and to check if the product worked for them. All right. So that's sort of a problem statement that we can solve from a product and design angle. And maybe you actually do longer trials and you figure out how to answer the questions they may have during the seven days to see if it's going to work. But I think that that's an example that we killed Anu and now we're, all the business metrics are better, but you have some users are unhappy because now they cannot test the product longer, but now we're solving that problem to, so as a follow-on.
0: That's a great way to frame that, yeah. You skip back to, the, to building a great product. So Yeah. And it's yeah. what you were saying early on. It's like, you don't want to, you can much more easily AB test your way into a bad product than into a good product. If product isn't the focus around the testing.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately you have to build something you like, right. Which, uh, you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in this process too as the app creator. Um, and you don't want to just follow a gradient descent to like the most highest conversion <laughs> like thing. Right. Um, because like yeah, there's probably a lot of things that would sell well that isn't necessarily part of the mission.
2: It's, and that's I think where sometimes sort of having uh, sort of counter metrics is helpful. Mm. I think Andy Grove, who's a you know he was the the CEO of Intel back in the when they moved from memory to uh, CPUs, but he talks a lot about having this concept of counter metrics. He's like, hey, this is the metric you're trying to move. Trial start, but then let's keep an eye on these other two metrics that could be NPS, that could be long-term churn, whatever that is, to make sure that you didn't kind of move something one direction, but it, it went that, you know, you, you're suffering yeah. later. Um, so I think that's... Plug well, like one
1: hole and cause another hole someplace else. Right?
2: And, yeah. and unfortunately, a lot of the optimization and funnel game ends up being like that. Where Yeah,
1: I mean, you're just moving. It goes to, even back to our the beginning of our conversation about friction, like you know yeah okay, you make a completely frictionless onboarding. like yeah, you'll increase your funnel conversion rate, but then like are your business metrics and like NPS actually going to go up? Maybe not because you're probably just pushing that bounce to a later stage, right and 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 not actually make you're just moving things around
0: right? And that's something I've been thinking a ton about. you know, I, I think being able to view these life use subscription life cycle, analysis is something that is really hard to do right now like there aren't and and you know I think it's it's something we're actually improving with revenue cat charts but um, well I mean what do you use now for that you use amplitude or something like that and build out custom funnels and stuff I mean the I would say that well that's one of the biggest pain points like especially yeah.
2: when you're trying to figure out pricing because um, what matters is you know what's the lifetime value of the customer maybe like what's your
1: yeah, I was gonna you ask know, how I mean, long
2: are does you it take you... to get the money back? And we onboarded on, on Revenue Cab before you guys had the price testing stuff. So I did a lot of that manually. Um
1: have you tried our
2: testing till I forget. Are you guys no any? I haven't because uh, we're, no, still I'm at, the, I... <laughs> we're still in the 2.3, <laughs> we're still in the old version. Oh, old SDK, is... yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still a beta very much, right? Mm-hmm. So like you I was gonna ask the, like how you guys account for because like you can measure conversion rate easily. That's a binomial distribute or whatever. It's like a a, a, you know A, B choice, like converts or not, but like how do you measure like lifetime value or how do you account for things further down the... It, the and this is model. where
2: like we've literally gone down to like models in R, statistical models to try to figure <laughs> out the right... You know, I mean, I what would, do you think we our were, price
1: like, testing tool is? It's not an R, but... <laughs> exactly. Like like you
2: have to build it properly, but there's a point that sort of spreadsheets don't end up like stop working for the most part. Yeah. And when you start testing pricing and different durations, so yeah. you cannot... You cannot easily the compel, normalize like oh, it, right? that yeah. monthly plan versus an annual plan, because you don't even know what the long term churn is going to be. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where we had to, all, you know, do a lot of the, like I was saying back, talking to people in the space and saying, you know, talking to people at like, Comline Headspace, hey, what's your year one retention? Yeah, like, I want to see uh, what the what the best numbers in the world look like, and how do we get some some heuristic to try to figure, out, like, hey is month one product usage a good predictor of, you know, annual year one subscription retention to try to estimate LTV and getting some error bars. And I think that's something, you know, both myself and my editor product have a background in statistical work. So I think it was easier to pull off, but it's super tricky. I would say it's it's a work in progress. And back to the previous point, if you don't clearly have an answer, Almost like the right. statistical significance. Like if it's not like obvious that it's better, then it's probably not better. And
0: if it's not obviously better, always and and just generally default to what's like better, better for users. Wait, exactly. Yeah. And there's some cases that our A/B doesn't
2: pan out. Like yeah. oh, it's a huge win, but it's saying like, no, we're building and we actually think that users want this. You know, this thing right. is explained in a better way. Uh, so we're still gonna roll it out because we designed it thoughtfully anyway. Um, But yeah, the subscription life cycle. And I think it gets probably an order of magnitude more complex if you have freemium, which is why we don't yet have freemium. We want to add it. I do think a a consumer app at scale should have freemium. Because there's a lot of kind of flywheel effects that you get from yeah, yeah.
1: more users, network effects, better usually like, an app like yours that's supposed to be long term use, yeah, right? Like, like better app
2: store, pre- like there's it just the of Revenue board? Cat
1: users don't pay us anything, and it's great because they tell their friends, they take it to work, like it works in B <laughs> two right. B as well. Yeah. So the
2: catch is, I think early on we're trying to answer what is the right, right way of packaging, and pricing, and understanding if we create value for users. Honestly, having a hard paywall was the easiest way of getting there. Like if you cannot get people to pay you a small amount of money, um, and you're not within kind of line of sight of yeah. getting a, not, like conversion rates that make sense for your business, whatever it costs you and your margins.
1: Hard, hard cash is like the best yeah. measure of engagement, right? The hard cash, you know, my point on sort
2: of optimizing for something you can test quickly, right? A hard pay, will you get information front, same yeah. day or maybe a week, but because mm-hmm.
1: that's, that's the problem with freemium that d- you distribute the purchasing event, like all through the lifetime. And like, it makes it much harder to reason about.
2: Exactly. And I think we're going to do it. And we absolutely want freemium. I fundamentally want freemium because I think more people can, more people should be taking care of their sleep, but figure out like, hey, what are the features that should be paid? What should be free? Should be like a longer free trial? All those things just take, I think, almost like a full product team to answer Mm -hmm. and you need in the order of months to answer. Um, So I want to make sure that when we're ready to pull the trigger for freemium, we have thoughtfully figured out what that looks like.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, um, we're hitting the top of the hour, so it's about time to wrap up. But, um, where can people find you online? And any any closing thoughts as we wrap up? I mean, I think just a small pitch for the
2: sleep. Like, okay. I want to emphasize how important it is for you to be sleeping. So I'm, I'm available at, you know, Twitter, Leon Sasson, at Leon Sasson, and always down to talk about sleep or consumer apps or geek about all this stuff. And, Feel free to also reach out my email, Leona. at Right Science. And I love chatting about consumer apps and, and, and this business. It's kind of super fun. Um, I've been jamming with a bunch of other people that have apps. And the, the sort of cross-pollination is incredible because I knew nothing about it two years ago. And now I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm probably average. Um, and <laughs> if you talk, you know, I, I learned from a ton of kind of people, both paid consultants and actual just advisors. To the basics are just not that complex, right. but if you're sort of blind to the basics, it, it's tricky. So, anyway, feel free to connect, and I love chatting about this stuff.
1: It's great, yeah. And if you're if you're thinking about doing onboarding at all, you should go download Rise right now because it's a masterclass. It really is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Leon. It was it was fantastic. So, uh, and it kind of fun too because uh, anybody listening to this podcast could be a Rise subscriber. Like everybody needs to sleep better. So <laughs> go download and uh, subscribe. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Leon. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.